We're breaking in a new sound guy tonight. You have the tape started? Good for you. Folks, we live in a time of almost unprecedented rebellion and independence in our culture. People are throwing off rule and restraints with a, just a frightening vengeance. It's really reminiscent, I think, of the period of the judges. The scriptures tell us that in those days, every man did what was right in his own eyes. That seems to be the culture in which we find ourselves. And the church is not immune to such things. There is a growing diminishment of the authority of the scriptures. The idea that the scriptures are sufficient for all of our needs is a concept that is increasingly becoming foreign to most people. People in the church at large think nothing of criticizing the leadership of the church, expressing their opinion on matters in which they are little informed. It's all part of the culture in which we find ourselves. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13, and let me just remind you of a verse tucked away here in the back of this epistle. It is a very weighty verse. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. Writer of the Hebrews says there, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. It's a pretty direct statement. Speaking to the people of God and their relationship with the leadership of the church in which they find themselves. I think it's important, though, to bring some balance, perhaps, to this. The, the leadership of the church is not some sort of ruling oligarchy that can do or say whatever they want and people just have to fall in line underneath them. Church doesn't belong to the elders, does it? Who does the church belong to? It's God's church, isn't it? It's God's church. To the extent that the leadership is in tune with the Spirit and leading in according to the Spirit, then the command here in Hebrews 13, 17 is absolute. It says obey. It just says obey. But obedience and submission is not the sum total of what it means to be a good Christian. I think as leaders, there's a kind of a subtle temptation that can overtake us, and that is to mentally redefine faithfulness among church members in three really interesting ways. Uh, attendance at church programming is mentally sometimes assumed to be that's a mark of faithfulness. If you are here when the doors open, every time the doors are open, you're faithful. 
you're faithful to God. I think sometimes it can slip in the idea of if you put something in the offering plate, when it goes by, you're faithful. That marks you as a faithful Christian. Or perhaps even the idea if you don't make waves, just you know, show up when the doors open, put something in the plate when it goes by, and don't make waves. That marks you as a faithful Christian, and that's, that's just woefully inadequate what it means to be a faithful Christian. We have created in the church an unbiblical hierarchy. We've even introduced unbiblical words to sort of define that hierarchy. We have clergy and we have what? Laity. Those are not biblical terms. They're actually holdovers from Roman Catholicism. The idea that there was some sort of priest that stood between you and God. The Bible knows nothing of such things. So tonight... So we gather together, we're asking the question, what is the biblical relationship between shepherds and the flock? How do they relate to each other? I think answering that question, there's really two immediate and significant observations that we could make. Flip over with me to 1 Corinthians. Let's look at the first one. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Thank you, Jim. It's ringing as bad out there as it is up here. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. This is a most significant verse. You can preach a whole sermon series on this one verse. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. At the moment of conversion, the Spirit of God has immersed us into the body of Christ. We have become one in the body of Christ by Spirit baptism. It has made us brothers and sisters in Christ. It's made us one body together. If you'll look back earlier in this chapter to verse 7, where it says, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then the Apostle Paul will go on and talk about different manifestations of the Spirit there in the church at Corinth. The point he's making is that this Spirit baptism, this plunging together into the body of Christ, this becoming brothers and sisters, one in Christ, also is the moment of our empowerment for ministry. We have been given spiritual gifts for the common good. It's the most significant thought if you think about it. God has put this church together. He has plunged the people into it that he wants to be here and he has gifted them in the way that he wants them to be in order that they might do ministry together. That is an amazing thought. more than that. According to Peter, everyone is constituted a priest of God now. As a priest of God, we have a unique, high standing, a calling that gives us responsibilities, that gives us certain rights and privileges and obligations for the building up of the local church. There is no clergy and laity 
That is an Old Testament concept. It's gone. We're all in this together. Together. Think about this. The epistles of the New Testament, unless they are addressed to a specific individual like Philemon or for a certain purpose, but the epistles of the, of the New Testament, the general epistles, are always given to the whole church. Given to the whole church. They are not written to the elders of the church. They're written to the whole church. The whole local fellowship. Why didn't the Apostle Paul write what he uh, to, to the leadership of the church and then let them sort of filter it down? Because there is this leveling that has occurred at the moment of conversion and the birth of the church. We're all in this thing together. We're all priests together. We're all possessing spiritual gifts together. And we're all to be ministering one to another. So the, the injunctions of the New Testament come to all of us equally. So what is the relationship between elders and the flock? Take a look at Ephesians chapter 4. And this is, by the way, this is all introduction. Just set the stage here. Ephesians chapter 4, you know this passage. What is the relationship? It is one of joint ministry. Look at Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastor-teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What is the relationship between the elders and the flock? It's a teaching relationship. It's a shepherding relationship. It's a, it's a relationship of discipleship and, and maturing so that the flock of God does the work of the ministry. We don't hire people to do the work. In fact, I think that's what's behind some of the criticism that grows up. If faithfulness is defined as showing up, occupying your seat, putting money in the plate, not making any waves and you hire people to do the work of the ministry, then it's very easy to be critical, isn't it? I mean, after all, when I go out to eat, and I go to a nice restaurant, and the service is lousy, they don't get much of a tip. Because I'm paying for something, right? If that's the philosophy that subtly creeps in, it's easy to see how people can grow critical. So tonight, we're going to look at three, here it is, you ready? Three specific ways... Three, we're going to be very specific here. Three specific ways in which the elders and the people are harnessed together. So that we will understand the growth of the church rests not upon the shoulders of a select few, but is the privilege and responsibility of everyone. Here they are. You ready? I'll give them to you right up front. It's very easy. One word each. Reaching teaching, and relating. Reaching, teaching, and relating. Three very specific ways in which we share ministry together. 
first one, reaching, that's just a, another way to say outreach, which is another way to say evangelism. There, I said it. That's the word. There's not, not another word I could say that would create more anxiety and stress in your life than that. I shared this with the church almost a year ago, and I think it's profound enough to, not because it's mine, believe me, but to take it back out and share it with you again. It was a survey that was done around 20 years ago by a church growth consultant. They were trying to determine what are the means and mechanisms by which, humanly speaking, people come to Christ. So they asked people, what was the most significant thing that influenced you to come to Christ? And of course, people answer more than one. So when you add up, any of you are going to add up all my percentages, you're going to say it comes up to more than 100. But that's why people list more than one thing. But here they are. A church visit, two to three percent. Only two to three percent of people say they came to Christ because they popped in and visited a church. Sunday school or children's clubs, things like Awana and so forth. People say four to five percent. That's what influenced them to come to Christ. How about the pastor? How much influence does he have? Five to six percent, according to the survey. How about a person just personally seeking? You know, you've all heard those stories of someone there alone in their room and they pick up a Bible and they just start reading it and they come to faith in Christ. That does happen, by the way. In about one to two percent of the cases. How about evangelistic crusades where we mobilize the whole city, and we pack out a stadium night after night after night. Half of 1%. Half of 1%. How about special church outreach programs? Concert or seminar, special speakers, those kinds of things. 2 to 3%. How about outreach visitation, door knocking, those kinds of activities? 1 to 2%. So how do the majority of people come to faith in Christ? What do you think? Friends and family. 75 to 90% of the people come to Christ in that means. Now, I'm not going to take the time tonight to poll you, but we've done this before. I've seen it done a number of times, and, and it tends to hold up. People come to Christ through friendship evangelism. That's how it happens. People sharing Christ with people, with family members, with neighbors, with co-workers, with friends with whom they've established a relationship. Remember, it's three specific ways in which we are, what? Harnessed together to do ministry. The elders of the church are not the church's evangelistic arm. We're the church's evangelistic arm. At this point in time, I guess I need to ask and answer a question. What is evangelism? How am I defining it? So are you ready? Here it is. This is my definition of evangelism. If you don't like it, you can give me yours later. Evangelism is the act of presenting in the power of the Holy Spirit the good news of God's saving grace through Jesus Christ in the clearest possible way to the unsaved, whatever the results. I'll repeat it to you. Evangelism is the act of presenting in the power of the Holy Spirit the good news 
of God's saving grace through Jesus Christ in the clearest possible terms, whatever the results. Evangelism is not to be defined by its effect. Evangelism is a truth. It's a presentation. It's not conversion. Conversion is God's work. And typically, beloved, evangelism occurs through a series of encounters with somebody. It is very, very rare that you just walk up to somebody, sit down next to them on the airplane, or go bang on their door, or meet them in the grocery store, or whatever it is, and you open your mouth and speak, and they fall on their knees and repent and, and come to Christ. That just doesn't happen very often. I mean, it does happen, but not often. It's normally done through a series of contacts in which a relationship is built over a period of time. And, and when there is a trust relationship, when they know that there is a basis by which you really care for them as a person, then they're willing to listen about Christ. Now, there are two sides to evangelism, biblically. You ready? Side one. Evangelism through changed lives. Evangelism occurs through changed lives. It's gaining an invitation to speak. It's living in such a way before unbelievers that they say, you're different. You're different than anybody else I've ever worked with at this job before. And then you have an opportunity to do what? Speak to explain why you are different. I was amazed this week as I began to correlate some of this biblical data. I want to share it with you. We got time here. So go to John chapter 13. We're going to look at a number of passages under the heading of evangelism as a changed life. Or it's evangelism through a changed life. That's a better way to say it. John 13. In verse 34, this is so significant, so significant, and I can't hardly wait until we get to John 13, whenever we get to John 13. Jesus says, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. For by this, what? By what? By this love one for another, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How do you gain an opportunity to speak? It is when people observe Christian body life. They're amazed. They've never seen anything like it, and they cannot explain it. It defies human explanation. People do not naturally love each other. People naturally are hostile with one another. But when there is a changed heart that brings about true love within a, within a body, it is incredible. Absolutely incredible. Let's see this played out. Go with me to Acts chapter 2. Verse 41 and following, Acts 2 and 41. 
So then those who had received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now that's an effective evangelistic campaign. That is an effective sermon. And they were, here it is, continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Look, people said, how these people love each other. They can't get enough of each other. And we've got a great turnout tonight, but we only meet together one night of the week. That's not the way it was, beloved, in the first century. They didn't do a Sunday morning, by the way. Sunday morning didn't come around until the fourth century when Constantine made it a legal holiday. The early church worked on Sunday. They met at night, but not one night a week, not two nights a week, not three nights a week. Every night they met. And what did they do when they were together? Verse 42. It's basic stuff. Hmm? Teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. And the love poured out as anyone who had need. Others just spontaneously sold possessions and, and contributed towards them. They, they said, the love of Christ has so changed us. We'll take care of your need. Imagine what your neighbors would say. You had fallen on some hard times and church comes around you and starts flooding you in this way. You speak powerfully, very powerfully. Maybe this was unusual. Maybe, the, maybe this just occurred here in Jerusalem at, the, at Pentecost, but it sort of died out, right? These were fanatics. Go with me over to 1 Thessalonians. That's not true. Look at chapter 1. Chapter 1 and verse 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Drop down to verse 9. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul was only in Thessalonica a very short time, two Sabbaths. Maybe longer than that, but that at minimum. But there was such an amazing change that went on here among these people in this church that it becomes known. It says all over Macedonia and Achaia, that's the northern and southern province. That's it, all over Greece. The word of, of their conversion goes forth. People hear it and hear about it. This is a this is a church that is loving one another and turning from their old way of life towards Christ. This is a changed life. Go back to the left to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. 
verse 14. You moms, you've made your kids memorize this verse. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Semicolon. Why? So that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Among whom you appear as what? Lights in the world. You want to be a light in the world? Stop grumbling. Stop disputing with one another, Paul says. Because grumbling and disputing are deeds of the flesh. They represent the old way of life, the new way of life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Self-control. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 5. I just want to show you this didn't originate with Paul. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure or on a but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. And do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. When they look at a changed life, they can come to no conclusion other than that Christ has changed you, particularly when you add your verbal testimony on top of it. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. As people moved through the imperial city of Rome and they fellowshiped there in the church at Rome and then they went out into the empire, they brought with them the news that this was some kind of place to be. These were people who loved each other. This was a church that was unified around a common purpose and goal. Give me one more. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Why? So that... In the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, do what? Glorify God in the day of visitation. A changed life is the platform from which the gospel presentation comes. Evangelism is sharing the good news and the power of the Holy Spirit, right? It occurs over a period of time as a relationship is established with somebody as they've observed your life they've observed your marriage they've observed your children they've observed your work ethic they've observed your business practices all of these things they've observed about your life and they say you are really weird i have never met anybody like you what makes you like you are and then you say can i tell you let me tell you about Christ. Let me tell you about Christ. 
But there is a place for a verbal witness. You can't leave your testimony forever silent. There's two reasons you can't do that. Number one, nobody ever got into heaven by observing your lifestyle. Okay? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. They need the word of God at some point. The problem for many of us is we we begin, we lead right off with all of that, and they don't know us. There's no basis to accept what we've said unless someone else has gone before and plowed all the ground. You might be the one to pick the fruit. Could happen. They want to know, are you real? There is a place for a verbal witness. That's when we go back to 1 Thessalonians again and look at the verse that I intentionally skipped over. It's not just that the Thessalonian believers were living a, a different lifestyle. That was important, but it was more than that. It says in verse 8, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. They opened their mouths when the opportunity presented itself. They spoke. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 he says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Be ready to speak. Know what you will say. Live righteously that opportunities will come to you. If you understand that evangelism is not conversion, then you understand that sometimes the sowing and harvesting has a long lead time. A very long lead time. Go with me to Acts chapter 8. I'll show you something there. The early church did speak. They didn't just live righteously but silently. They did speak. Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, it says, And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, that is, Stephen. And on that day a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judah and Samaria, except the apostles. Drop down to verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about doing what? Preaching the word. Or bringing the good tidings. Another way to translate it. So wherever they went, they did speak. When the platform presented itself to do so. The revelation for me, beloved, as I was just working through this, is that the injunctions to live right far and away exceed the injunctions to speak. We are to speak, it's clear. We're supposed to speak. But the, but the Bible talks more about living right before the pagan than it does about speaking to the pagan about Christ. Isn't that interesting? And I think the answer is that hypocrisy converts no one. They don't want to hear about your Jesus and what he has and can do in, when you don't show a life that's been changed. Reaching is number one. 
specific way we can share the ministry together. We are all called to reach. You will reach somebody that I can't, and I can reach people that you can't. We all have circles in which we move. So first is reaching. Number two is teaching. I wish I could have found one that alliterated as well, but I couldn't. But anyway, teaching. Go to Matthew 28. You know this well. Matthew 28 and verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the Great Commission, right? Great Commission is given to whom? Usins. Okay, it's for us. This is our Great Commission. As we are going, actually, it says in verse 19, it's basically, as you are going, imperative, make disciples. Wherever you are, make disciples. Baptizing them and teaching them. What is a disciple? Short definition is a disciple is a learner. A disciple is a learner or a pupil. How do you make disciples? Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. How do you make disciples? You teach them. You teach them. Is it the elder's job alone to do this? Or is there a teaching responsibility, a discipleship-making responsibility that goes to everyone? What do you think? I know what you're thinking. Goes to everyone. How do I do it, David? How do I make disciples? I've never done this before. How would I go about it? How do you do it? Glad you asked. The first thing is I teach people the truth. It's as simple as that. I teach people the truth. I don't have all the answers, but I teach what I know. You get people books to read, and I say, "This is, you got to read this book, and then you got to read this book, and then you got to read this book, and then you got to read this book." When I first meet with somebody, and I ask them, and they say, "You know, will you disciple me?" I always ask them the question, "Well, what what are you reading?" And the answer usually is because most guys are really dull in this area. They'll tell me Field and Stream or Golf Digest or some other really significant work, <laughs> and I'll say, "This has got to stop immediately." Yeah, but I, I'm not a very good reader. Practice. It's like exercise. It comes with practice. You've got to read. God inscripturated his truth in a book. You've got to read. So I'm going to give you a book, and I'm going to make you read it. And then I'm going to give you another book, and I'm going to make you read that too. And then I'm going to give you another book, and I'm going to make you read that. And you're going to read, and you're going to read, and you're going to read, and you're going to read. And then if I'm nice to you, I'll give you some tapes to listen to. <laughs> when you're in the car, you'll listen to tapes. You're sitting in traffic, wasting time. You listen to tapes. Maybe I'll take you to hear good preaching. You need massive doses of the Word of God. That's what you need. It's just got to, your whole way of thinking has to be changed. The only way that can be done is by a massive influx of the Word of God. Every single opportunity, we pour it in, we pour it in, we pour it in. We have to completely transform the way you think about the world. 
And next, I'll help you apply the scriptures to your life. We're going to build up your understanding of the word of God, but at the same time, we're going to help you apply it to your life. Maybe you have a problem with worry. Or we're going to sit down and we're going to look at the sovereignty of God. And how does that impact the issue of worry? It's the answer. Sovereignty of God is the answer to worry. And last, I'm going to challenge you to get involved in ministry. So you're not a cul-de-sac where everything comes in or you're like the Dead Sea, right? Water continues to pour in and there's no outlet. What happens to it? It's barren. So it's simple. You have to learn. You have to apply. You have to give. That's what it means. Now, that's not hard, is it? You could do that. You could give somebody a book and tell them to read it. You might have to read it yourself. So you know what it says. You can give them tapes. You can help them think through Scripture, applying to their life, and you can challenge them to ministry. Reaching is all of our responsibility. Teaching is all of our responsibility. I won't put you on the spot and ask you if you ever discipled anybody in your life. I'll just ask the question and let you think about it. Have you ever poured your life into anybody? Okay. Here's the third specific way. Are you ready? It's called relating. Relating. Now, what in the world do you mean by that? Because we are a new family in Christ, right? 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Something new happened. Because of that, we have a new responsibility to each other. Over and over and over and over again in the epistles, we see repeated this theme of one another's. One another's. Being related to each other. Caring about each other. Let me share some of those with you. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. Suffer together, it says. Suffer together. Romans 12, 15. Rejoice together. So we're supposed to suffer together and we're supposed to rejoice together. That's being related to each other. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2. Carry each other's burdens. Carry each other's burdens. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Restore each other. Romans 15 and verse 30. Pray for each other. Romans 12. Excuse me, Romans 1 in verse 12. Encourage each other. Encourage each other. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. Forgive each other. James 5.16. Confess to each other. Ephesians 4.25. Be truthful with each other. Hebrews 10.24. Spur each other on to good deeds. Philippians 4, verses 14 and 15. Give to each other. Titus 1, 13. Rebuke each other. 1 Thessalonians 4, 18. Comfort each other. Hebrews 10, 25. Exhort each other. Romans 15 and verse 14. Admonish or counsel each other. 
So who's responsible to do all of this? Each other. That's exactly right. This is a one another ministry. You find yourself, I find myself, in these each others, these one another's. These are things that we're to be doing with each other all the time as we relate together in the body of Christ. This is ministry. This is what it means to be involved in ministry, is to be doing these things, these activities. Well, what about spiritual gifts? That's probably right on the tip of your tongue. That's what you were thinking. Well, what about spiritual gifts? Well, let me talk about spiritual gifts for a minute. I think first it's worth noting that nowhere in the New Testament is a believer ever told to look for or seek out his or her spiritual gift. Think about that for a minute. There is no place in the New Testament that it ever tells you to look for your spiritual gift. That means all the spiritual gift surveys belong where? In the trash. Okay? The Bible does not tell us to do such a thing. Nowhere. I'll give you another point about spiritual gifts. Do you realize that they are nowhere ever defined in the New Testament? They're not there. There are lists of spiritual gifts, but it's never defined for us. Now, we import our own meaning into these words, but the Bible never defines them. Just lists them. Nor are we ever told how to recognize them. How do I know when somebody has the gift of mercy? The Bible doesn't tell me how I know such things. So it doesn't tell me to look for them, it doesn't define what they are, and it doesn't tell me how to figure out if somebody else has got them. Let me add another point for you. When Paul speaks to Timothy and to Titus, and he's telling them to appoint elders in the church, leaders in the church, do you know that he never says to them, look for their spiritual giftedness, does he? He tells them to focus on what? Their character. Are they mature Christian men? Men of character. Maybe another mini-series here on spiritual gifts. Do you know that all the lists of spiritual gifts are wrapped in a context of humility? Think about that for a minute. Wherever you go to a passage dealing with spiritual gifts, always in close context is the issue of humility. It's always brought up. The most gifted church in the New Testament was which church? Corinth. What was Corinth's problem? Pride. That's exactly right. The more gifted a church or an individual is, the more they need humility. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 falls right in the middle of Paul's extended treatment of spiritual gifts, right? 12, 13, 14. What's chapter 13 all about? I show you a more excellent way. What is the excellent way? Love. Humble love one to another. I mean, so many people cop out on ministry by saying, well, I'm not gifted in that area. So what? And how do you know anyway? The point is that we pursue one another's together. They're given to everybody. We all do the one another's. And 
And our giftedness will work itself out in that context. I'm not denying that it exists. I'm just telling you that the Bible doesn't really place that much of a premium on it. The Bible places a premium on body life, on ministering one to another, and then the giftedness or whatever it is and however it works just sort of works out in the context. Acts 2 says that 3,000 people came to faith at Pentecost. Yet a couple years later, you can't find them anymore. They've sort of dropped out. They're uninvolved. They don't attend. Their attendance is sporadic. They have no ministry involvement. They sort of sit on the premises instead of standing on the promises, right? I mean, the whole idea of an inactive, non-ministering Christian is a theological oxymoron. It can't be true. Can't be. All right, here's what I start to meddle. You ready? Fresh piece of paper for meddling. What is your ministry within this body? Just think about that. What is your ministry within this body? If it's true that there is giftedness given at the moment of conversions, 1 Corinthians 12, spirit distributing individually as he wills for the common good, that's a theological truth, and we know it is. And we have just a whole list of one another's. By the way, there are 60 one another's in the New Testament. Did you know that? I only gave you just a smattering of them. 60 of them. What is it that you do within the body? In what way are you contributing to the family of God that is meeting at this address? What is your role? What is your ministry? How are you acting in accordance with your new redeemed nature? Father's Day was last Sunday, and I received a new clock radio for Father's Day. I was very excited about my new clock radio. My new clock radio requires six batteries to make it operate. It's got a huge battery compartment in it. Six batteries you have to put in in order to make it operate. If you only put five batteries in, guess what? Doesn't work. Doesn't work. If I put in five good batteries and one dead battery, it works, but not for long and not with much power. The remaining five good batteries have to carry an extra heavy load. They have to do more of the work, and it wears them out quicker. But if I put in six good batteries all harnessed together, it's a great radio. It's a great radio. The same is true for the church. If only a few the members of the body try to carry the full load of the ministry, the ministry suffers. It suffers. God has called each and every one of us to be harnessed together in ministry at this place. That's the way God intends for his church to operate. So what is the 
the relationship between elders and the flock. They are to be what? Harnessed together in joint ministry. We need you. You need us. That's the way God put it together. Let's pray. Father God, I pray tonight for anyone who might be here for whom this truth is new, something they've never heard before, our Father, and I pray that your Spirit would cause their hearts and minds to reflect upon it. I pray, our Father, also for those of us who have heard this before, perhaps repeatedly, but... We've kind of neglected it. We've gotten caught in the routine, our Father, and we've neglected the truth of body life. I pray, our Father, for this fellowship. I thank you, first off, our Father, for what you are doing here in this place, for the people you have gathered here together who love the Lord Jesus Christ and are desirous of doing His will, His way, in accordance with your Scriptures. I pray, our Father, for those of us in positions of leadership who bear the responsibility to teach and to shepherd and to make available ministry that forgive us, our Father, if we have wrongfully limited people's involvement through some sort of pride or, or laziness or not wanting to be involved with the, the work in, necessary to get people into positions of ministry. Forgive us, Lord, for such foolishness, such sinfulness. Lord God, I pray for those who are among us who are looking for a place of ministry. They recognize the truth of this and they want to become involved. And I pray, Father, that you would make it clear where they can be there, where they can contribute but our Father, I pray for all of us that the one another's would be true of our lives. It would require no organized program, our Father. It is just simply living out the redeemed life one with another. Enable us to do that. I pray for Jesus' sake so that the world, when it looks at us, would know we are really disciples. Amen.